Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. And that link will be in the show notes in the soil, in the air, every breath we take, there's mold. Like we don't want to be scared of mold as it is outside. Mold inside is a problem. So mold is not a problem. It's where mold is that becomes problematic. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. When you finish listening to this episode, consider heading over to kristabigler.com forward slash detox because mold and mycotoxins really burden the elimination and detoxification systems. And that quiz will help point you in the right direction on whether this is a topic you need to add a little extra care to. That's kristabigler.com forward slash detox for that free quiz and assessment. All right, today in the Less Stress Life, we have return guest, Laura Adler, the environmental toxins nerd. She is an environmental toxins expert and educator and a certified holistic health coach who teaches health coaches, nutritionists, and other holistic health practitioners how to eliminate the number one thing holding their clients back from the results they're seeking, the unaddressed link between chemicals and chronic health problems. She trains practitioners to become experts in everyday toxic exposure so they can improve client outcomes without spending hundreds of hours researching on their own, combining environmental health education and business consulting. She's helped thousands of health professionals in over 25 countries around the world elevate their skill set, get better results for their clients, and become sought out leaders in the growing environmental health and detoxification field. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you so much for having me back. This is always fun. Yeah. And you know, I think at the time of this recording, we published your air episode, which did very well. So that is, yeah, like I looked at the numbers the other day, I'm like, that when people were into this topic, it's kind of fun. So I wish you as listeners would sometimes shoot us a voice memo and just tell us what was good so we can continue to give you exactly what you want to hear. So today we're talking about mycotoxins, which is kind of an annoying topic. Mm -hmm. I often don't want to talk about it sometimes because it's like, feels a little doomsday-ish, but we want to make sure people have tools to recognize the problem because it's very like stealth and your environment can accidentally be like majorly degrading your health. And we'll get into some case studies and stories, both of Laura's and some other clients. We'll make sure to share those because I think sometimes it's very nice to hear those and hear how it was like, it's so hidden. So let's jump straight into it. Hopefully you're following along and you know what mycotoxins are, but I don't blame you if you don't. This is mold. We're talking about mold. So Laura, will you tell us what are mycotoxins? Big picture. Yeah, so mycotoxins are a byproduct. It is basically a sort of bio-warfare that is produced by certain species of molds. Not all molds produce mycotoxins, but mycotoxins are a defensive mechanism that molds use to defend their territory. And those mycotoxins can make people very sick. Now, when we're talking about mold and mold illness, it's important to keep in mind that mycotoxins are just one of this sort of trifecta of components of mold that can make people sick. So mycotoxins are just one of the ways that mold can make people sick. It tends to be one of the worst, but mold itself, meaning the actual mold spores and parts, meaning like little physical body parts, the the hypha, which are sort of like the stems and the roots, the mycelium of that mold, all of those 
parts of mold can make people sick as well. Those types of exposures to mold spores and mold spore parts tend to result in what people normally think of as like, oh, I have mold, and they get like allergic or respiratory reactions, sort of in the same way that people might react to like physical particles of pollen. So it's a respiratory issue. So they tend to be not as acute and not as chronic at the same time as exposures to mycotoxins, which are different. On the first realm, you've got this, or the first of this trifecta, you have the mold spores and the mold parts. What's important to know about that is that the mold does not have to be living in order to cause harm. So dead mold is just as harmful as living mold when it comes to spores and mold parts. People don't understand that. And that ends up cre- can end up creating a lot of problems as people encounter mold in their homes. And they're like, oh, it's not active. So I can just like demolish the area. And they don't realize that in disturbing the mold, even if it's not actively growing, you're dislodging spores and body parts, mold parts, and you're kicking them up into the air. And that can make you sick. That was actually an experience that I had a couple months ago. So I can speak to that. And so dead mold is just as problematic as living mold. And we'll come back to the mycotoxins on this as well, is that our natural reaction when we encounter mold is we want to kill it, right? Let's get rid of it. We want to kill it. But the killing of mold or the act of trying to kill mold can actually make the problem worse. I'm actually going to come back to that because I want to get to this other sort of middle of this trifecta. So we've got mold spores and parts. Those are problematic. We also have mold VOCs or microbial VOCs. These are MVOCs and these are, you know, aldehydes and other sort of alcohols that are produced by molds. This is part of what you smell. Like if you walk into a house and you smell mold, you're breathing in these byproducts of the mold. So you've got mold itself, you've got these VOCs they produce, and then you have this sort of biowarfare component, which is mold's primary defense mechanism, which are mycotoxins. So all three of those are need to be considered when somebody's wor- working or dealing with mold. Um, it's not just mycotoxins, it's not just spores, it's kind of all three of these things, which is part of why this whole topic is complicated. I need to make sure I understand the three ways. So it's mycotoxins, mold VOCs, and is the third one, like what was the third one officially? Mycotoxins, MVOCs? Yeah, spores and mold parts. Okay, spores so like and body parts. parts. Yeah, like physical parts. And so the physical mold spore and then any fragments of the structure of mold. So if we think of mold like a fungus growing on the forest floor, what we see as the fruiting body of the fungus, like that's the end byproduct of the mold reproductive process. Mm-hmm. But what you don't see is the root system, the mycelium, that it basically just infiltrates the soil underneath. Like these are the largest and most ancient organisms on the planet mm-hmm. are molds and fungus. And so if you pull up the fruiting body, meaning like, oh, here's a trumpet mushroom or whatever that's growing in the forest floor, you still have left behind the root system and the mycelium, which is that big root system. And so this kind of goes back to this idea of like killing protocols. And we can talk about like remediation and things like that. Improper remediation often is just concerning itself with removing the quote fruiting body, Mm. right? So they're just like, oh, we wiped off the mold off the surface. But what you don't realize is because it's got roots, you have to get the roots. Otherwise, it's just going to reestablish itself. And then you have the spores, which are just basically like these, it's sending out spore to reproduce. It's like pollen. It's like pollen, exactly. And so it's like the pollen of mold. And so any of those parts, the pollen or the spores themselves, or any fragments of the fruiting body, meaning the actual mold that's growing, and the stems or roots, these are referred to as hypha, and the mycelium, which is like the part that's in underground, or if we're talking about building materials, it's the part that you cannot see that is invisible, but that's infiltrated the drywall, for example, or wherever you have, you know, mold growing. So 
Well, and All just of those parts can be problematic. Yeah. And just to bring it like, just try to imagine, you know, we have beneficial molds, I suppose, beneficial yeah. fungi as right. mushrooms, right? And the last time someone has used the word mycelium on this podcast, it was this mushroom guy, Jeff Chilton, super fun, nerdy podcast yeah. episode for someone who's likes nerdy stuff. And he talks about beneficial mushrooms like reishi, lion's mane, et cetera, yeah. and how some companies just use the mycelium and not the actual fruiting body, which is yeah. not as good. It's like a cheap way around it. Like, let's just grow a little bit and scrape it off yeah. the top and not yeah. get to the fruiting body. So that's like a bad thing. And in the beneficial mushroom world or food space, you know, and then I think about so beneficial, and then these are not always beneficial. Now the names, this gets a little complicated. I'm sure I had another piece here. It doesn't matter. Anyway, I was just thinking about beneficial in terms of mushrooms. And I was also thinking about that's all I got you jump in. Well, so I mean, look, we wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. Nothing would exist on this planet if it were not for fungus and mold, mm -hmm. right? Fungus and molds are our decomposers. So when a tree falls in the forest or a leaf falls off your tree in the backyard, it is molds and fungus that break that organic matter down and allow those nutrients to recycle into the soil and into the environment. So like we need these things. Absolutely. Like life wouldn't exist, right? You know, we know from, you know, not that our gut microbes are quite the same thing as the mold or mycelium, but it's that symbiotic relationship where like if we didn't have a microbiome that, you know, basically is like, we're just puppets to our microbiome, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's not that different with molds and mycelium, like they play an essential role in the functioning of the ecosystem. So we have to slow clap to mold for being so pernicious and for being great and for decomposing the things that need to be decomposed. Otherwise, we would be drowning in, you know, a tree that fell down and or was cut down a 1000 years ago would still be here if it wasn't for molds and funguses doing its job as a decomposer. So it has an incredibly essential role. Molds outside, meaning in the soil, in the air, every breath we take, there's mold. Like we don't want to be scared of mold as it is outside. Mold inside is a problem. So mold is not a problem. It's where mold is that becomes problematic. So that. mold in the outside environment, great. It's supposed to be there. Good job. Good job doing what you're supposed to do, mold. Mold in the built environment, that is where it becomes problematic. And it's because it's so pernicious, it's going to do whatever it can to maintain the space that it's carved out for itself. Oh, cool. Here's some drywall. It's perfect mold food. It's organic matter. It's easily digested because drywall is basically cellulose. So it's pre-digested mold food, right? softwoods, particle board, MDF, all of these like softer woods or wood-based product or paper products, like that's perfect mold food. And so it finds a cozy little spot and it's like, ha, it's, it's humid. Yum. And yeah, yummy. It's humid. Nobody's bothering me. I'm just going to like go hog wild, have all the, you know, spore babies I can reproduce, settle myself in. And now I'm going to protect this space because it's mine. And I'm going to do that at any point when I feel threatened. I'm going to do it in general. I'm going to do it anyway by producing mycotoxins. But if I feel like my space is being threatened, I'm going to get TO'd and I'm going to go, okay, plan here is to protect and ensure survival of myself, right? And I'm going to do that by sending out spores, more babies, go proliferate find another little corner of this section of drywall. And then I'm going to start producing these mycotoxins. Like I said, not all species of molds produce mycotoxins, but unfortunately when they get into the built environment, the ones that do like that's where it can become problematic. And mycotoxins are so small, you know, people think, Oh, it's behind a wall. It doesn't, they're so small microns size, you know, 0 0.01, microns or 0.1 microns. I can't remember the exact measurement, but they can just pass right through drywall, mm -hmm. right? Like they're so small and that can be really problematic. So mold is not bad. Mold in the wrong place mm -hmm. is bad. And to clarify, we have molds and molds produce mycotoxins. As you said, they're byproducts. Yeah. So when you see mold, there's like maybe one mold and maybe hundreds of mycotoxins potentially. It's possible. Yeah. And I think another misconception is it's not just mold that we're seeing that, you know, people like simple thinking, and I don't mean this in a condescending way, but you know, it's just how we are tend to be incredibly reductionist 
people look at mold and they go, oh, the color of that mold is black. I have black mold, mm. like toxic black mold. True. Right. The toxic black mold, the, the quote unquote black mold that people are talking about is a specific species called Stachybotrys. It's incredibly dangerous. But what people don't realize is any mold can be any color. Mm. Right. So a Stachybotrys can be green. Stachybotrys can be brown. Other molds can be black. So we can't just go by what we see and go, oh, that's not a big deal. That's a big problem in people. This is a minefield of a conversation. It is a minefield of an experience to have. I've been living through my own mold experience for the last few years. It has absolutely taken a toll on my health. And I work with people that have had their own mold experiences. And one of the things, and I think this will be helpful, especially if people listening have experienced issues with mold, is that this experience is one that is so prone to what's referred to as medical gaslighting, meaning people don't believe you because the conventional medical paradigm has yet to accept that mold illness beyond the allergic respiratory response that comes from breathing in spores, right? Remember I said there's the spores, there's the MVOCs, and then there's the mycotoxins. The conventional medical community doesn't like acknowledge that mycotoxin, that whole part of the problem, which is the significant part of the problem, like they're just like, oh, whatever, right? Like it's like a quote unquote adrenal fatigue, like no, it's not real. And they just don't have any training in it, right? There's no training in mold illness. And so because mold exposure present can present with such a wide array of symptoms, it's like any symptom. Often people who are experiencing mold illness are seeing their doctors and they're being dismissed. Oh, you just need to rest. You're tired. It's part of aging. It's all in your head. And that's where we get this very isolating experience of you're like, I know something is wrong whether you know it's mold or not, you're like, I know something is wrong and nobody believes me. Well, I think we should jump to how you know that someone has mycotoxin problems or that there's something going on. And then what we do about it next, that'll be the third section. And if you don't mind, I'll share a couple quick case studies from mine and then you share yours and like your other feelings, like fill in the blanks here. I literally talked to someone this week and when she was telling me her story, she was telling me how, you know, all of a sudden, like she went to go work out and it was like, she couldn't hold the weight and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, wait a second, let's go back to that time in your timeline. And she had wondered this as well. But it was like she moved into this townhouse and immediately these symptoms started and then she moved out and immediately things improved, right? She put on weight, toxins are fat loving. Um, There was a lot of things there. And then a couple other ones that I can think of, like this one person, we did all this gut work. She's a lot better, but she's very distracted by her children who have a lot of health issues and are getting sick very frequently. And I'm very concerned about mold. And she is as well because she knew her neighbor. She's living in military housing. I don't remember where. Mm -hmm. And so, but she knows her neighbor had had issues with mold in the same complex. And eventually they find it behind closet wall. So you can't see it. So they find it behind a closet wall. They were like, oh my gosh, we're leaving. And her husband and her kids stopped getting sick, you know, at that rate. You know, it's very suppressing. Right. I can't remember which species of mold. I think there's a couple species of mold that produce a mycotoxin called mycophenolic acid. Mycophenolic acid is used as a drug to suppress the immune system of people who are undergoing organ transplants, Mm. right? Because you don't want your body to reject a new organ. So they suppress the immune system. And I had that in my old apartment. I had the species that produces mycophenolic acid. That is going to suppress your immune system. So you know, it's constantly getting sick, being fatigued, like the symptoms, unfortunately, are so broad and vast. There's neurological symptoms, there's skin symptoms, there's gut symptoms, there's weight symptoms, there's sleep, insomnia issues. You know, my cluster of symptoms was such that it actually took me a really long time to even figure out it was mold. And here I am working in this space of environmental health. And it was like, well, no, of course it's not mold. Like, no, it's not mold because my house does, you know, like being in this space. And I mean, I wasn't a mold expert at that time, right? I don't even think I'm a mold expert now. I just have the lived experience of having gone through it. And because I'm the research person that I am, I've done a lot of reading and digging into this space, but the symptoms are so hard to pin down and because they can be so many other things right? And before you go, oh, wait, it's mold. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to identify that. And like you said, with this particular person, oftentimes there's mold behind walls, and it doesn't smell and you can't see it. And so you might live for years 
with that before you actually can identify, wait a second, I think what's going on here might be mold. Yeah. And if it's like lower amounts or small areas versus larger areas, you could be differently affected. And I gave you an example of a couple of people moving into a place, having onset of symptoms and moving out. However, my understanding is if a place, if you have water influence, <laughs> water damage, you know, if something's been wet for 24 hours, you now have mold. Like I've heard other people speak on this topic and they say, if you had any wetness for 24 hours, you have mold stuff going on or mycotoxin potential. Um, maybe. maybe. I mean, it depends. I mean, you know, at any point mold is in the air, right? Mm-hmm. Every point, every breath we take, there's just naturally ambient levels of spores and, and whatever in the environment mm-hmm. and mold is opportunistic. So yeah, different mold species grow at different rates. So some take are really slow growing molds and they, they need more than 24 hours. Other molds might be more fast growing. And so 24 to 48 hours is sort of that window where if you find wetness or if you have a leak, you want to get it dry ASAP to prevent any problems. But just because something has been wet for 24 hours, I don't want to automatically assume like, oh, my God, the whole wall needs to be Mm -hmm. cut out. You know, I think this is another aspect of this whole mold dialogue is that, again, with this reductionist thinking and this we want very clear delineation between what we do. What do I do if I find mold? And for some people, based on the type of mold damage that they have, the extent of the mold damage that they have, and then maybe their genetic susceptibility to mold. Some people, it's expected that 25% of the population carry genes that means that their body doesn't flag mold as being something that needs to be excreted. It doesn't identify it as a toxin or a foreign body. And so it just kind of goes like you can do whatever you want. I have that gene. It's not a great gene. Um, Not it's like the bad roll of the dice genetically. Which gene is it? It's called the HLA-DR gene. Okay. Um, And, you know, some people estimate that it's far more than 25%, that it's probably closer to 40 or even 60% of the population. I don't know if we have enough data. A lot of people have it. But then, you know, even if somebody doesn't have those genes, if they have compromised detox pathways, if they're not able to appropriately detox and excrete molds and mycotoxins out of their body, that's another weak link. So this is partly why, and this is going back a little bit to this concept of like medical gaslighting or just gaslighting in general, or the feeling of being gaslit, like, why am I the only one that feels sick? You can have four people living in a house and three of them are not having any symptoms and one person is, or people are having different symptoms. So it's like one thing if you know, you're living in a household and something happens and all of a sudden everybody gets a headache or everybody gets the same thing. It's really easy to pinpoint, ah, okay, it's something in the house. Mm-hmm. But when one person has brain fog and the other person can't sleep and the other person's getting weight gain, it's really hard to kind of jump to the conclusion that like, aha, what we have is something that's affecting each of us differently. Yeah. But that's part of why mold is tricky. And those that genetic component and the detoxification capacity component yeah. can partly explain why people respond differently. Right. And I think that's a good way to oversimplify it because it is kind of a numbing yeah. topic. It's like, oh, yeah. there's so much here. But really making sure detoxification works well, which is a yeah. big topic in itself, is going to help in a lot of these niche topics. Yeah. So one more thing about, I think we need to move to in a person versus in the environment. We've been talking about yeah. an environment and that's great. And that's what we should continue to talk about because you're great environmental expert here on mycotoxins. My understanding is when people, you know, take in the spores, it does tend to reproduce and they start to have like mold living inside of them essentially. And so it reproduces. So we have the options to test humans and environment. Now, yeah. if you're a human and you're in a continuous exposure of mold, it's like, which one do you do? I don't know. You know, it's like, because you need to know if you're in an environment where there's mycotoxins, and if that's not removed, or you do not leave that environment, you cannot get better. It's like having a hole in like, the floor will never be dry if you have a hole in your roof forever, right? Like you have to take that out. Yeah, so there's layers to that. So the first is, as always, right, Mm -hmm. this is just like the most layered conversation. Mm -hmm. So first thing that you said in terms of like mold can establish itself. So mold can very commonly colonize in your sinuses. 
Mm -hmm. right? So there's a test called the Marcon's test. It's a nasal swab test, and it's testing for fungal growth and microbial and mold growth that's colonized in your sinuses. Now, if you think about it, like, you know, we breathe in through our noses. That's our primary entry point for oxygenation and staying alive via breathing, right? It's through our nose. And so any mold spores or mycotoxins that are in the air just going right up into our sinuses, they have sort of a direct path to our brains. This is why we have so many neurological symptoms with mold. And our sinuses are moist and it's dark. And so mold is going to go, this is prime real estate. I'm going to settle in. And so colonized mold can mean that even if you get out of a moldy environment, you are taking mold with you. So some people, like if they go to, you know, a hotel or they stay at a friend's house and they feel better, that's because they left the moldy environment. But that was a big kind of flag for me personally, because, and I did have colonized mold in my sinuses, is I didn't feel any different. People were always like, are you sure it's mold? Cause like, wouldn't you feel better whenever you like went on a work trip or whatever? And I was like, yeah, I never felt better anywhere. I went, I never had any change. And it's because I'm literally just taking the mold with me. It's in my body. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say it's a, it is a simple test. It's, you know, n- none of these tests are covered by insurance. They're none of them are cheap. You know, they're all like at a minimum $200. So it becomes expensive, but doing a Marcon's test to see whether or not somebody has that um, is not a bad idea. And then you treat that with various antifungal nasal sprays and whatnot. So one, yes, mold can absolutely colonize in your system. I just had this conversation yesterday with a colleague who was like, uh, I had some mold show up on a test and what do I do? And I'm a renter and how do I test my space? Like, where do I allocate my funds? Because like I said, it's expensive. And, and so you don't even know where to start. You, know you don't I mean? even know where to start. So I think I'll come at it from two perspectives. If somebody is symptomatic, right? Like they have something that's going on, whether it's a weight gain or insomnia or a sleep issue or, you know, whatever it is, they got something that's bothering them. Typically mold is one of those things where you're like, I've done all the things. I did all the things. I eat really well. I do all the things, but I'm still not getting better or making progress. And that in and of itself is like a good opportunity to test to see if maybe question maybe mold is part of what's happening. And so if somebody's symptomatic and they can't figure out what the cause is, regardless of whether they get better when they leave their house or not, because it could be colonized, it's not a bad idea to do a mycotoxin urine panel. Just test, do a nasal swab, right? Because if you can say, ah, yes, I do actually have mold exposure happening, then that informs you going forward, as opposed to somebody doing all this blindly, doing all these tests and spending all this money without any direction. So if somebody's symptomatic and they can't figure out what the root cause is, not a bad idea to do some testing. Now, with the urine testing, you know, there's definitely, I would say, From the experts that I have spoken to, both about testing in the home and testing in the body, is all of these tests are imperfect, and they all need to be interpreted by somebody whose job it is to interpret these tests, right? So, and that's not necessarily me, because I'm not an expert in either of those areas. However, you know, for example, with the mycotoxin urine tests, we should have mycotoxins and molds in our urine, because that's where they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be leaving the body. I remember I said earlier, we're always being exposed to some degree of molds and mycotoxins because we're human beings on this planet. Mm -hmm. And so finding them in your urine is not necessarily a bad thing. Obviously, if the amount, if somebody's in the 95th percentile of levels of a certain mycotoxin, like, okay, that might be a problem. But conversely, having really low mycotoxins doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have any exposure. It could just mean that your body doesn't know how to get rid of it. So it's not. Yeah, I mean, if you're drinking regular coffee, you probably have some mycotoxin exposure because it's good to remind ourselves that we have food and environmental exposures. We think about it environmentally and we're not poo-pooing food, but like there's some people I've heard speak on this and they say it felt like they just do some, you know, human testing. We were going to talk about environmental testing, but human testing, right? And it shows there's a difference. Like you can tell which ones are environmental and you can tell which ones are food. Yeah, grain. I mean, I live in farming country and what you do is you harvest grain and if it's not the right price to sell it, 
You also need it to be dry when you harvest it. And if it's not dry, it needs to get dried. And if it guess what happens if it doesn't dry? I mean, they have fans in the bins, right? Because they're not going to always truck it to the elevator and put it on a train and ship it to wherever to make cereal or whatever, or sunflower seeds or, or whatever. But it needs to be dry. like they run fans. And it's a big, big topic, you know, and they'll test yeah. it, you know, they put a probe in the middle, and they test it and they make sure it's not too moldy. But you know, things slip through for sure, right? That's just oh, the yeah. nature. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you're talking about agriculture, the glut of data that we have on mold is actually from animal husbandry research. It's not mm-hmm. from testing on humans. There's very little sure. testing. Yeah. Um, there's very little research on the effects of mycotoxins and molds in humans. There is some, yeah. but there's not a lot. Because animal science is like a huge, it's more tied to revenue when you have good yeah. animal science versus like human science. It's like, eh, you're fine. You know what I mean? It's not like tied. Exactly, exactly. It's not like we don't have the same applicability. Like if cows are walking around on certain times of the year, I think last year is really moist here and they're walking around, they'll get like fungus, they'll get some kind yeah. of thing in their hooves and then they'll have this foot rot thing. And you know, that's yeah. like a big problem, you know, cause yeah. like now you're not going to function well and like each cow is a thousand dollars. So like it becomes right. a very quick problem. Anyway, side notes, right. but back to environmental so, testing. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, like I said, if just because somebody has really low urine mycotoxins. This is, again, why you need to have somebody who understands the full picture that they're working with, an actual mold expert or a doctor that specializes in mold illness, to really be able to look at the full picture and say, okay, you have low mycotoxins in your urine and not just automatically jump to the conclusion that like there's nothing wrong and there's no exposure because it could be that your body doesn't know how to excrete it whether it's because you've got compromised detox pathways or you have the hladr gene and your body just doesn't know how to do that well yeah and when you're testing a human, you can provoke it, right? So you can yeah. take detox loving stuff and do some sweating and things to try to get it out of cells and into the urine so you can actually see it. Yeah. But what about observing the home place? So sometimes there are people or I've had clients that will be able to get a home inspection covered by their homeowner's yeah. insurance. Now, I yeah. think that can vary. I had a client once she was having a pretty serious, we may have talked about this in a previous episode, or she was having a pretty serious reaction to her environment and it ended up being carpet glue. And I've also known a whole Indian health service clinic where like everyone was getting sick. And it's because when we build these places, we do it at the cheapest cost. And then it's built really poorly for our area. It's built by Arizonans for South Dakota. And so like everyone was getting super sick. So anyway, my point is, is how do you know when it's behind the stuff? Like, what are our options for environmental and home testing? Right. So I mean, I would say get a mold inspector, not a home inspector, Mm -hmm. right? Because there's this very specific training around mold inspection. Mm -hmm. A home inspector generally doesn't have that training. A home inspector might be able to spot obvious mold growth or like obvious leaks, but a mold inspector is really going above and beyond or should be going above and beyond. Now, before I even take one more extra breath, I want to point out that a mold inspector, any mold inspector should absolutely never, without question, also offer remediation services. This is an extraordinary conflict of interest that completely discredits, in my opinion, the work of the mold inspector, because if their job is to find mold and then repair or remediate, that's a tremendous conflict. So any business in the mold space that advertises itself as doing testing and remediation, you should not hire or work with, period, end of story. It's just not how you do it. Mm -hmm. The mold inspector might make recommendations to mold remediation companies, but it is a no conflict of interest. It should be a no conflict of interest contractor. So the one and only job that they perform is mold inspection services. They don't do anything else outside of that because that's a conflict. So a mold inspector will come and do a perimeter sweep of your house. These inspections tend to be non-invasive. So they're not like knocking down walls. They're just doing an exterior and an interior sweep. So the exterior sweep is they're looking at your gutters. They're looking at your roof. They're looking at your foundation. They're looking for places for water intrusion to see, hey, you know, you might have a problem here. They're looking for proper ventilation. So for example, if you have a bathroom vent, all bathrooms should be equipped with vents. That right there is a good thing to have if you're concerned about mold, which you should be, to making sure that that bathroom vent is actually venting outside and not into an attic space. It's true. To make sure that your dryer vent is not only venting outside, but it's unobstructed and that you clean out your dryer exhaust hose 
I mean, not doing that is also a fire hazard. So do that anyway, but making sure that there's an unobstructed airflow from your dryer to outside. A good friend of mine is in the middle of doing a big remodel in her house and her laundry room was positioned in sort of the central area of the floor plan in a little enclosed closet and her kitchen was on the other side and they were going to reconstruct the layout of the kitchen. And so they took down that laundry room and what they found behind the wall was just absolute proliferation of mold because the former owner of the house, when they installed the laundry room, they had the dryer venting into the wall cavity. So all of the moisture from all of the clothes that came out of the washing machine and were dried was just pumping into the wall cavity. It's like depressing, right? Like, why would you do that? Because people are stupid and they do realize, well, I can't have the HVAC system run. Don't sugarcoat it. Stupid people are stupid. Like I'm not. That's just stupidity. That's poor craftsmanship. That's just poor understanding of how building flow works. Anyway, so like you know, a good mold inspector will be looking for these things. They're looking for external things, and then they're doing. You know, they're looking under your window sills. They're looking under your sinks. They're looking um, at your ceilings. A good mold inspector may also use an infrared camera, which can be really helpful to spot potential moisture problems behind the walls that you can't see because with an infrared camera, any wet areas will show up as colder on the reading. So they'll look at the wall and go, okay, there's a cold spot right there. Is it because it's a window or is it because there's plumbing under there that's causing a problem? Now, a mold inspector, like I said, they can't see behind the walls. If you live in an, and this has been my experience, even though I worked with one of the best mold inspectors and he didn't find mold that was in my house, but he warned me about the wall that we ultimately found mold on because it was in a concrete basement and there had been, there was wood paneling that somebody in the 1970s decided to put up a bar in the basement and they had wood paneling. And he said, look, you know, I did the inspection in July. I live in Portland, Oregon. July's dry. It's dry month. Summers here are dry. It doesn't really rain. People think it's just wet all the time. It's not. Summers are dry. And so he did the inspection in July and he said, look, you know, this wall looks fine right now, but I don't know what's on the other side of this wood paneling. In an ideal situation, these mold inspections are happening during the worst potential time, which is when there's heavy rains, at least here in the Pacific Northwest. So we, you know, he didn't see anything, but he did warn me, I don't know what's happening behind that wall and it could be a problem, but I won't know until it starts raining. Hmm. And then it started raining. And then that turns out that those walls that were covered by wood paneling and drywall were very moldy and the walls are very leaky because the house is old And because, and this was something else that was discussed in the inspection, there was a giant tree right up against the house that had had been cut down. So the tree stump, that's probably about four feet in diameter, that is 24 inches from the foundation. So those tree roots- Don't plant trees next to your house. Don't plant trees next to your house. Don't do it. Don't do it. And if you have trees, don't just like do the work to properly excavate the stump and then check on your foundation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I share that at the sort of story as, you know, if you live in a place that has cyclical, seasonal, rainy seasons, if you can coordinate your mold inspection during the worst potential time, he would have caught that had it been actively wet. Right. Well, Um, but my point is that like he knew enough about the way that mold presents itself and moisture presents itself because their work is non-invasive that he at least issued me that warning of, I don't know what's happening behind this wall. And considering there's visible cracks on the foundation on the other side of this wall, and there's this giant tree stump, this wall might be a problem, but I can't tell you for certain because I can't see behind it. Right. So anyway, a good mold inspector is looking at all of these different places. Now, if a mold inspector finds mold or finds something, um, Ideally, they will offer some kind of testing, whether that's an ERMI test, which is dust testing. We can talk more about that. There's um, plate testing. One of the standards in the mold inspection industry is air sampling. But from the people that I've talked to, that is not at all a accurate test. You can have mold growth behind a wall and you're unlikely to get mold samples in an air sample if it's behind a wall cavity or under the floor or something like that. 
So ERMI testing is dust testing. Air sample testing is not as good. So talk to us about ERMI testing because, you know, like where I live, you're not going to get someone to come and inspect something. So I would need, like, it's nice to have tools. Like what could you order that isn't sucky or crappy and actually check your environment? Yeah. So the two that I'll talk into, the first is the ERMI and the second is the plate testing. I'll do the plate testing first. So plate testing is just a little Petri dish. You put it out for, you know, a couple hours, whatever, whatever the time period is close it up, let it culture, send it into the lab. They'll identify the species, whatever, whatever. So those are really cheap. Those are like $30 a plate. The problem is, A, the reason why you leave them for a couple of hours is because you're trying to capture any airborne mold spores. The problem is those plates don't read mycotoxins. They're just looking to culture a living spore. But as I mentioned in the beginning, dead mold is just as problematic as living mold. And if you have a dormant mold situation where there's an old leak, there's no moisture feeding it anymore, but it's still there, you're not going to capture any living mold spores on that dish. And so they're not going to culture. So you can get a false negative saying, oh, there's no problem here because there's nothing growing on this Petri dish. So that's the problem with plate testing. They're really inexpensive. They're really easy and they're accessible, but they're not very accurate. It's only going to culture if the spores are alive. And if they're airborne. So if they're stuck behind a wall or they're dead, even though they're still problematic, the plate test is going to be a false negative for you. Ermi testing, on the other hand, is a dust sample. So you basically get a, you know, a clean Swiffer cloth and a Ziploc bag, some rubber gloves and instructions on how to properly sample the dust in your home. And then you send that in. The ERMI stands for the Environmental Relative Moldiness Index. So the US EPA had done, I think this was maybe 20 years ago at this point, maybe it was even more than that. Maybe it was in like 1996, doesn't matter. They basically did, they tested like a little over a thousand homes for mold spores, mold species. And they came up with this index that's like, here's least moldy, most moldy, here are the species of mold that are really problematic. And so the ERMI test is just going, where does your house live on this index? Is it more moldy or less moldy? So it's measuring, I think there's 36 different species of molds that it's testing for. And it's then looking at the quantity of mold based on the sample size of dust that you gave. So it's also relative to your sample size. So that test can be really helpful. It's a couple hundred bucks, it's like $350 thereabouts. And that's gonna help you identify not only the specific types of mold and whether or not those molds are mycotoxin producing, but how much relative to your sample, what's the spore count, what's the count? And they're not looking, It's this is DNA testing, so they're not just looking for living mold. If they find dead mold, it's still, it can still attract DNA from that. So it's just like a picture of what's currently in the house. It doesn't tell you if the mold is active or dormant. It's just saying there's mold here. But we don't care, really, if it's active or dormant. Either way, if it's present, it needs to be identified and taken care of. The downside to these testing is that they're aggregates of the dust in your whole house. There's $300, you're not gonna do like one test for the living room and one test for the bedroom. Like it'll add up very, very quickly. And also you need enough dust in that room to show visibly on the Swiffer cloth, which can be really tricky. So you end up doing a dust aggregate of your house, which isn't gonna help you identify the source of the exposure or the source of the mold growth. It's just gonna tell you whether or not there is any, Hmm. right? But that gives you- it's a place to start, right? Yeah. It's absolutely helps you know if you need an inspector because you know you've yeah. got something there. So I think exactly. And that was actually where I started. I was like, I had all these symptoms. I don't remember if I did the urine test first. I think I did do the urine test first. And then I was like, uh oh. And then I did the genetic test and I was like, uh oh. And then I was like, well, let me check my apartment. And then I was like, oh no. <laughs> oh no. And the house that I lived in prior to where I'm living now, which also has a mold problem. So fun times. You know, I was on a top floor apartment in an old 1920s craftsman and the main floor and the lower basement level were one unit and I was on the top floor and it was the basement level apartment, the bedrooms down there, the basement had flooded six or seven times in the few years that I lived there. And the landlord, instead of properly fixing the cause, which was a problem with the roof and the gutters, he would just hire these wet vac guys to come in and suck the water out of the carpet but everything was damp for like days it smelled musty down there like that is classically a water damaged building 
And so even though I wasn't even in their apartment, the way that airflow moves through a house, it always moves from the basement up. This is referred to as the stack effect. And so whatever air was in the basement that had these molds and mycotoxins just worked its way up to my apartment. We didn't have shared HVAC systems. There was no HVAC. There was no central air heating or anything in this house. So it wasn't like it was coming up through the vents. It was just coming up through the floor, right? And that was where my exposure likely came from because I was never able to identify if there was an actual water damage within my unit. So the point is that like I still had positive and high levels of certain types of molds in my ERMI, even though I didn't have direct mold growth that I was aware of in that apartment. So ERMI testing is really helpful. Again, you really need somebody to interpret the score that's produced there's a rating system. Um, there's also something called the Hertz Me, which you can sometimes get as an add-on to the ERMI test, and it's H-E-R-T-S-M-I. I don't remember what it stands for. And that's a rating of like the five most toxic molds. And it's like, where do you stand on the worst molds? Like Ermi's looking at 36 different species. Hertz Me is looking at five. Mm-hmm. So like it's a good data to have. Now, again, A mold inspector, my mold inspector, Jason Kester, we share it, we're on the same page as this, is that ideally a mold inspector, while they might charge you for testing services, they're not making money off the testing services, meaning they're not upcharging. If the ERMI test costs $350, they charge you $350, meaning they're not making money off of trying to push testing on you, which is also very common. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we could go on about this for a long time, but- I think like, what does someone do first? If they're like, I think I suspect this. I think if you're symptomatic, test your body. If you, regardless of whether or not you're symptomatic, if you suspect you actually have mold growth because you've identified a leak somewhere or you see discoloration, do an ERMI test. You can get swab testing. So if you actually see mold and you're like, ah, that's mold, you can test it or you can just get it remediated. So if you're spending money on testing, but the results of the tests aren't going to alter your remediation plan. Mm. Maybe not. You don't have to bother with doing the testing. Thanks for simplifying that. It's just like, if it's not going to change the outcome of what you're supposed to do, it doesn't matter what species of mold is. You just have to get rid of it. So what we always want to do, if you have mold in your house is you want to physically remove it. You don't want to clean it with, you know, chemicals or bleach. Bleach is absolutely not something that you would want to use. Why? Because it's a biocide. It's killing that mold. And what is that mold going to do? It's going to send out spores and it's going to send out mycotoxins. Bleach is really only effective for non-porous surfaces, but molds grow on porous surfaces. Hmm. Even when we're looking at like superficial mildew in a bathroom tub grout, Again, people use bleach because they want it to look a certain way. They want it to look clean, right? They want to bleach out any discoloration. But that actually is making mold problems worse over time because that bleach is caustic. It's eating away and slowly dissolving your bathroom shower caulking, tub caulking. And what that's doing is it's creating more nooks and crannies for mold to hide and grow in. So over time, you are ultimately making the problem worse. So, um, you know, if you have moldy materials, you want to physically remove them. You don't want to do this yourself either. So you want to work with a mold remediation company who understands that that one containment, meaning containing the space with plastic sheeting, it's treated like a hazmat, uh, like a like a hazardous waste site, right? Your mold remediators should be wearing protective equipment, PPE, because mold is dangerous, and they're working with this material. So proper containment is a must. You have to contain the space so that in while they're ripping out materials, they're not spreading spores and mold parts all over your house, which is what will happen. So containment is really important. And, you know, you really want to be careful. It it very much is the Wild West when it comes to remediation. There's a lot of companies that are just like, oh, we do non-invasive remediation. It's really great. It's easy. We're going to come in with a fogger and we're going to kill all the mold and we'll guarantee it for two years and it's going to be great. That's what they say. It drives me nuts because despite the fact that they're in this mold remediation industry, they clearly don't understand that the killing of mold increases mycotoxin production and increases sending out spore. And they also don't 
clearly seem to understand that dead mold is just as bad as living mold. So when they, any company that's claiming that they're going to come in and fog your house and kill the mold and it's non-invasive, they're a hard no. You need somebody who's going to physically remove, they're going to cut the hole in the wall, they're going to remove the moldy material. The golden rule is wherever you see mold, you remove it plus 24 inches, 18 to 24 inches on all sides. Why? Because you're trying to get that invisible mycelium, that root system that is merely just going to reestablish itself, right? So like if you have a moldy lemon on your countertop, you can't cut off the moldy part. If you have moldy bread, you can't cut off the moldy part, guys. What's visible is the fruiting body. It is the end product. What you can't see is the complete infiltration of that substrate with mycelium. So the whole thing goes. Leaving us with uh, food safety knowledge at the yeah, end like, there, Laura. Don't cut off the moldy part. Oh, man. Um, Big yeah. topic. Big yeah, topic, but lots topic. of good stuff here. Lots of good stuff and here. And I, I want to just kind of point out, because all of this stuff is very heavy and overwhelming and depressing, is that there is a lot that can be done to stave off some of the worst effects of mold on your body when people aren't in a position to just move and leave a moldy environment, because that is really the first and biggest, most important step. It's like you can't get better in the same environment that's making you sick. Even if you remediate, like, you know, you can properly remediate and take care of it. And it won't be a problem going forward, provided no new leaks or water intrusion or floods or anything like that. But there is a lot that you can do to support your body. It's about supporting your gut. It's about taking, you know, the right kinds of, you know, herbal supplements that can help that are antimicrobial, that are antifungal. It's about opening up those detox pathways. And there's a lot of resources out there on how to protect yourself and sort of treat the mold exposure. It's complicated. There's not a single mold protocol that's like, yes, go do this because everyone is different and how people are affected are different. But people absolutely can heal from mold illness. It just takes a long time. Mm-hmm. And that's it's discouraging for people, but you can get better. Laura, where can people find you online? I know you said you had a mold expert talk in one of your classes. I don't know that you offer mycotoxin stuff specific, but I think you're including it in some of your other education. So where can people find you online? Yeah, people can go to my website, which is just lauraadler.com. You can find me on Instagram at environmental toxins nerd. I don't yet have a mold specific course or program. Not sure I'm going to go ahead and create one. I have a little bit of leftover trauma from my old mold experience. So don't necessarily want to submerge myself in that for content creation, but I do teach about it in one of my advanced courses. But yeah, people can have questions. They can hop over to my contact me page on my website, or they can message me on Instagram and I can point them in the direction of other resources and other folks or practitioners that that do specialize in this space. Perfect. Thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stressed Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life, and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 